Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. Almost one year after the death of George Floyd, with a police knee on his neck, is there any hope that this constantly replaying dynamic will ever change? Let's get to the bottom line. George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police almost one year ago sparked massive demonstrations and forced Americans from all backgrounds to wonder about their police officers' attitudes towards black Americans. Now the nation braces for a verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin. He was the officer who kept his knee on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes during his arrest. But the problem sadly hasn't ended with the death of George Floyd. Not far from where he died, a policewoman killed 20-year-old Dante Wright during a traffic stop just two weeks ago. Social justice activists say the list of killings at the hands of police just keeps getting longer and radical changes needed in the United States. Some argue that these are nothing but modern-day black lynchings by other means. But as the movement to, quote, defund the police and send money to other social support needs loses traction, what fixes are really out there? Today, we're talking to Nana Jumphy, the president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers, which launched an international commission of inquiry on systemic racist police violence against people of African descent in the United States, and is about to release those findings next week. And Professor James Foreman, Jr., who teaches law at Yale University and is the author of the book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. Thanks to both of you for joining us today, and these are obviously tense times. Nana, I'm, I know your report is about to come out, but we also have a trial going on and a, and a, and a verdict expected in the, in, in the coming day or days with Derek Chauvin. And as we produce this show, I'm very aware that three black people on average in the United States will die in the next 24 hours as a result of police actions. Can you frame for us what the stakes are uh, in the Chauvin trial and its outcome right now? Well, the stakes are high, um, as you know. You know, the, the stakes are high in many ways. We're looking at how is the jury going to make its decision? What are they going to be talking about? What are they going to be thinking about? Um, how are they taking all the information that's been provided? And obviously, across the country and really across the world, people are waiting to see whether or not this verdict um, is a reflection of things to come. I think that when we look at this as National Conference of Black Lawyers, we look at this as something that is systemic. This police violence is not just about Derek Chauvin. And so regardless of the verdict, you know, we've been doing this work for the past 50 years, addressing systemic police violence, looking fundamentally at how this affects black liberation and human rights. And we know that it's not just about one cop. It's not just about one police department or one city, that this is uh, uh, systemic violence and anti-black violence that needs to be addressed at its core. And the goal of our commission of inquiry and of this report is to help folks to see how that can happen. What are the findings that this international commission made? What are the recommendations? And to bring this issue of police violence in the United States against black people to the international arena. Um, as families and organizations attempted to do last June um, by bringing it to the United Nations. Thank you for that. James, um, you and I have known each other for a couple of decades, and I have been reading your writings and your thoughts and concerns on exactly what we're talking about today over that period of time. And just this last week in The Washington Post, you and a co-author wrote that one of the other high-risk actions that can shatter black lives uh, is having expired tags or temporary plates 
uh, on their car. Can you go further uh, with that for us? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I very much look forward to seeing this report. I think it's going to be very important um, because I agree with you that it is a systemic issue. You know, when I was in law school uh, in the early 90s was when the Rodney King trial uh, took place. Uh, and I remember being sure that he was going to be convicted. And I remember my, having my faith in the law uh, and I was a critic. I understood the history of racism in this country, but but my classmates and I, we all saw that video, and and we were sure that he was that those officers who beat him were going to be convicted. And now here we are now, waiting for another verdict and another trial. There's another generation of young black people. My son is 11 years old. We talk about this case every day, uh, and so. So there's another generation of people that are looking and asking the question, when somebody has been so clearly and, and brutally treated by the state murdered, is there going to be accountability? But, but Steve, as you said, that really is just the beginning. And so the, the article that you're referencing that, that my uh, student T.J. Grayson and I wrote together was really trying to make the point that as long as we have police doing so many of these functions that could be done by non-police actors, we are going to have unnecessary violence and we're going to have unnecessary racism and unfairness. So I think going forward, the big challenge that we face as a nation is, yes, to have accountability in these individual cases like what we're seeing right now in Minneapolis. But we really have to be asking ourselves, do we need and want police to be doing as much as they have been tasked to do? Do we need them re responding to people who are suffering from addiction, people who are suffering from mental health crises? Do we need them enforcing the traffic laws the way they've done now? And so that's what that uh, op-ed was really trying to do, is to say, what if we created a, a non-police force, civilians, unarmed who were responsible for keeping our roads safe. And, and that's the kind of thinking, I think, that, is gonna need, that we're going to need to undertake as a nation going forward. Thank you for that. I mean, Nana, what is your, your thinking on that? I mean, I, and I have to just be honest. You know, I've done a, the various shows on this. I've been, I have seen friends of mine pulled over because they were racially profiled, you know, driving through a white community, and I happen to be... I've seen this for years and years and years. I interviewed former uh, Republican governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, and said in Camden, they had to basically reduce that police department down to its, its foundations, get rid of officers, and, and re-institute uh, very different training. Val Demings, Congresswoman Val Demings, former uh, uh, Orlando police chief, said, we need to have a national commission on police training. I haven't seen any of these things happen broadly in the country. Um, and I thought after the George Floyd uh, protests, after the murder, and then the protests and so many other murders that we saw this past year, something was going to change. Has anything really changed this last year? So I'm really glad. And I, my answer would be no. First of all, let me deal with that first. My answer would be no. And I guess we were going to law school at the same time, Brother James. Um, but I was here in Los Angeles um, during the, the rebellion um, during the Rodney King beating and, and as well as the rebellion after the acquittal of the four cops that beat him. And there was a Christopher Commission. I mean, there was all of this energy that went into making this different, uh, and you know, from now on. And as we see, that hasn't been the case. 
when we talk about where can we reduce the police force, what can we do, when you look at, I'm really looking forward to, to you, Brother James, um, to, to you, Seth, to all of the folks of Al Jazeera and other activists on the ground, organizers, other attorneys getting into this report, because the commissioners heard 44 cases, families and attorneys, as well as organizers and activists, case by case, including the cases and the family members of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Botham Jean, Kayla Moore, and others. And then heard expert testimony mm. from folks talking about historic violence all the way to Andrea Ritchie talking about police violence against black women, gender nonconforming and trans people. And so these conversations are right in the report, this analysis about these pretextual uh, traffic stops, about mental illness. So many of these cases mm. involve traffic stops involve people with mental illness, involve people that are looking for help and calling the police to get some help, and folks are ending up dead and, in one case, um, paralyzed, you know, that we looked at. And so there's recommendations here that talk about, of course, the domestic issue and looking at what can be done domestically with respect, you know, all the way from training and reform, all the way to some aspects of abolition, where you're talking about defunding and defanging the police. You find all of that in this report. But there's also the conversations about and, and findings around the issue of how we take this in the international context. What are the international rules about uh, law enforcement and the use of force? Mm -hmm. And the commission found again and again that the United States, the police in the United States, don't only not follow the laws in the United States with impunity, but violate international law. And in fact, the commissioners found really importantly, you know, and uniquely in this report, that the systemic police violence against black people in the United States constitutes a crime against humanity under the Rome Statute, that it is a widespread attack on a civilian population, in this case, black folks in the United States, accomplished through murder, through torture, and other qualifying means. It's really one of the main highlights of the report, no, both in analysis no, and in recommendations. No, no, I just want to underscore this point. I found it so fascinating, and, 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 and thank you for letting me take a, a look at the report a bit early. Um, but you basically say we are unable to fix this, and we need international intervention. We need the International Criminal Court to take action because the United States has proved itself unable to take the corrective measures broadly that need to be taken. I just want to underscore that I have that right. And, and what would be, you know, in short form, because I know there are complexities there, for some action like that to actually take place? Well, the independent prosecutor of the ICC has the capacity under mm -hmm. the Rome Statute to do it on their own. They can go and just decide, hey, we're going to look into this. We see that this happens with other countries. For some reason, there's a reticence. I'm saying some reason. We know what they are. But there's a reticence to do that when it comes to the United States. And we're calling on that to happen. We're also calling on the Biden administration to voluntarily subject the United States to the jurisdiction of the ICC for such an inquiry to happen. This is an administration that indicated that black folks, in his words, brung him to the dance, that it is because of black folks and the work that we did and the in terms of voting, et cetera, that he and the Democrats are in power right now. This is an issue that they know must be addressed, and one of the good faith actions should be 
to not just sign the treaty and all of those pieces that take time, but to immediately say, yes, the United States is open to the jurisdiction of the court, will put itself under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and allow there to be this inquiry at that level. Well, thank you for that. James, I used some powerful language in the opening of today's show, and I, and I talked about um, our legacy, our horrible legacy in this country of black lynchings and how uh, some have viewed this uh, police brutality and these murders that we have seen, not just recently, but over a very long, unending period of time, actually, um, as lynchings by other means. But there have been some other changes in atmosphere, in tools and tactics um, in the recent decades, like the global war on terror has ended up with police forces having equipment they would never have had uh, had that not occurred. And, and you've also, and there are also complicit players in this that you've written about, which I found so interesting and, and, and brave to a degree, to say we've had black leaders in America that are also culpable, that, that participated uh, in over-incarcerating, uh, particularly men in the black community, you know, creating a, a culture that destroyed families and that kind of ripped the fabric apart uh, to where we're at. So I'd love to give you an opportunity to talk not just about this enduring problem, but how both the, those that have been part of it have been there, but how things like the global war on terror backlashed, you know, in, 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 into some of these issues as well. Well, I think that's right. And, um, and, and I think when you think about what happened in this country in terms of building mass incarceration and then building these, this incredibly repressive uh, set of police forces that operate in a lot of cities, right, and those really go hand in hand, that there were a lot of people who played a role in, in helping to develop that. It was really a national, it was bipartisan in many ways, Stephen, as you point out, and my book is about this, it crossed uh, racial lines. I do think that the black leaders and the black politicians who were pushing for this um, I am somewhat more sympathetic to their position, that is to say, their motivations in many cases. I think it grew out of a real care and concern for their community and desperation. They wanted to do something, and the tools that they had at hand were so limited, so they did turn to the police. But nonetheless, even though I'm sympathetic to their motives, I am critical a lot of, of the, a lot of the decisions that were made in the 1980s and the 1990s. The militarization, as you said, which is a result of some of this global war on terror. And now I think the question that we face is how do we respond and how do we chart a different path forward? And I would just want to compliment what Nana was saying about the international. So she went up to the international level, and I want to go down and say, the other place I think we have the potential to resist and to fight back is at the very local level, at the very micro level. So when you ask, Steve, whether anything had changed in the last year, I would say that while police violence hasn't changed and racial profiling hasn't changed, what has changed is this movement of activists and local organizers and young people, my students, I teach in a law school, so I see them every day. They arrive with a fervor and a commitment, and they're doing very smart things. They're going to city councils. They're going to county councils. They're going to mayor's offices. They're looking at the police union contract, and they're asking, why do we have these collective bargaining agreements that allow police officers, when they've shot somebody, to have seven or eight or 10 days before they're even interviewed by an investigator? Why are they allowed to look at the body camera footage before they file their police report? 
Why are we funding in our cities police to do things 10 and 15 and 20 times more money than we're funding school counselors and mental, and mental health counselors? So I do think the, the one source of optimism that I see at the local level is I think that there is a incredible energy over the last six months over 140 laws have passed in cities and counties across the country in some way to re restrict and reduce police violence. And so I think if we can take the international that Nana is pointing to and the, the very local that I'm pointing us to, those together can be a complementary path forward. Look, that's that's heartening. And, I'm, and thank you so much for laying that out. But, you know, it's after, you know, a couple of decades, uh, um, aging myself in this, but, you know, looking at how very, you know, people from very different parts of the country, you know, different corners of the nation see things differently. Gravity doesn't work the same everywhere. I want to show a couple of graphs and, and Nana, get your response to it, because at some point we need to come to some common ground and common understandings. why I'm doing this show so that people see and get an understanding uh, of, of the tensions that, that are the horrors that are really out there. But we have this first chart, which shows how many Americans say police treat racial groups equally. And if you talk to the black community, 9% believe that they are treated equally, 42% of whites. That is a big gap in perception. If you look at political party, how many Americans say police treat racial groups equally? Democrats, 10%. Republicans, 64 percent. So we've got a uh, racial divide and we clearly have uh, party divides in this country in terms of the perception of these issues. Nana, I know that your report um, had to deal with, you know, a cross section of, of players, but you had difficulty bridging uh, to Republican participation. I'd just be interested in what you think it's going to take. I mean, is it just going to be you know, uh, uh, a combat uh, uh, to get folks to pay attention? Or do you think there are ways to bring over, you know, some Republicans and, and, and more members of the white community to understand the anguish and the injustice um, that your commission has, has highlighted? So our, the commission's work wasn't necessarily on, like, U.S. party lines. Right. It was really looking at, at you know, exposing this information and giving people the opportunity to see and to hear what is really happening. And I will say this. We had these hearings open to the public so people could join. And, you know, just like a regular Zoom got, has the chat on the side, people asking questions. And it was really clear that it was eye-opening. I have been following these cases. Some of these cases you all have been following. There were things that were talked about from family members and attorneys that made whatever we think was the horror even more clear in its depravity and horribleness. Mm. Um, heard things that I hadn't heard before. And I think that that's part of it. Part of it is for people to really be able to hear from, to see what's happening, as opposed to living in their bubble. If you're in your bubble and your bubble does not include black people, your bubble does not include police violence, then of course you're going to have those attitudes, right? And so I think it's really important. If you go to our website, 
uh, internationalcommission.org. You can actually hear the hearing still right now. Um, the report will be there soon. But I think it's important for people to actually hear from Botham Jean's mother, not snippets from a press release or a press conference, but actually hear her talking for 30 minutes about what the murder of her son was, what it did to her, what it did to her family, what it did to the country of St. Lucia and how it reflected you know, upon them. I think it's important for them to hear from Kayla Moore, a tra black trans woman um, who was murdered, to hear from her sister um, and to understand being trans and having mental illness and how much the police uh, violence impacts really vulnerable communities. And so that's the work that the commission began, led by NCBL, but along with NLG and the International Association of Democratic Lawyers last July, with our commissioners, again, 12 commissioners from around the world, four brilliant rapporteurs, all of us led by the able arms of attorney Lennox Hines to really bring this out, to make those connections that James has talked about from the international all the way to the local and back again so that we can finally address this issue honestly and with some kind of vigor. You know, I, I uh, uh, am finding myself, you know, in this kind of discussion, this kind of work to try to bring people's attention to things. You know, fine. When I was reading James Foreman and, and his students' uh, piece this weekend, you know, about traffic tags, and we had Dante Wright. We also had uh, Lieutenant Car uh, Caron Nazario, uh, Hispanic, who was stopped. And, and I have to tell you, it kind of takes you into this place where if we didn't have video, and I have to tell you, I have mixed feelings about you know, video and surveillance and this. I, you know, been spent a lot of time in China and see what uh, facial recognition software and kind of a surveillance society looks like. But I'm wondering to some degree whether body cameras, video surveillance, we would not know about Lieutenant Nazaria. We would not know about many of these cases. If, in fact, if we did not have um, iPhones and smartphones video recording this, what are your thoughts? Is that the pathway out of this is basically... Um, a move to kind of keep police accountable, uh, and, and, is, and is video going to deliver us, James? I don't think so. We, uh, video can play a role, as you said, and we can all point to these examples um, that, that, that because of video, we now know about them. I think that, you know, five years ago, there was a lot of optimism pretty much across the political spectrum that, for example, body-worn cameras on police officers would have a significant impact on police use of force. Um, and this, the, the research is out, and it doesn't. Nana, just last, we have about 30 seconds left, and I know this is unfair, but also in your report, you, you um, write about the violations of the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And I like uh, to, to, to have discussions wedged in constitutional rights. Can you give us a quick snapshot of what rights are regularly violated uh, of black Americans? So we're looking at, the, you know, the right to not be deprived of your liberty, the rights of, you know, not being handcuffed, not being detained, uh, the rights of, you know, uh, to not be abused, to not be beaten, to not be subjected to excessive force. You know, those are the, the the right to not be murdered, to not be killed, to not have the police act as uh, as, right. as judge, jury, and executioner. And I think that it's important again that we 
recognizes the, the commissioners did that mm. these U.S. rights are being violated as well as these international rights. Right. So that it doesn't have to be something that's just an international court that can start here in the United States as well. Right. I'll read it. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. I just think that says a great deal. Nana Jomfi, president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers, and James Foreman, Jr., professor of law at Yale University, thanks so much for being with us and sharing your candid thoughts. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. So what's the bottom line? For a society to function, folks need to trust the police. But for a black or brown man or a woman, remember Sandra Bland, a routine traffic stop could lead to a life or death confrontation. And this is just abhorrent. It's not part of any civilized society or democracy. And it's got to be called out and changed. It's about time that Americans had an open and honest debate on the intersection of racism and policing in this country. Everything should be on the table, including rewriting history, limiting the use of police to enforce traffic laws, less military-style and military-outfitted policing, changing the laws, just whatever it takes to save lives and to create space to hopefully restart building trust across races in our society. Without trust, then America is going to continue to boil and twist itself into knots and never move beyond what many call America's original sin. And that's the bottom line.